Hi guys, welcome once again to the Nerdy Show Book Club. What you just heard was our amazing theme done by our very own uh, Luke McDuffie and a friend of his. Is Nick Brooks. Nick Brooks. Hi, yes. I'm Cap. Hi, I'm Hex. Brandon. Colin. Luke. John. And we are we are here today to talk about books and the books that we have read, the books that we have read together as a, com- as a Nerdy Show community. Nom. In sort of a fleshy pile we read these books. Yes. Mmm. Delicious fleshy pile. Some of it's inside me when I was reading a book. Yeah. I don't know who Wait. it was yet. Still searching. <laughs> Not it. In the last episode of Nerdy Show Book Club, we announced our first read-along book, which was Old Man's War by John Scalzi. Scalzi. And so if you haven't read it, pause it and then finish the book and then read it. <laughs> finish the book and then, and then start, start we're, the episode. We're going to be covering it a little bit later in the episode, so you can just omit that section if you want until the time, if you choose to read it. Or you can just hear us uh, talk about a uh, science fiction book and maybe you'll be interested in it, maybe you won't. That's, uh, that's what we're here for. We're not here to just uh, fill this thing with stuff that you can't listen to. But uh, we are here to judge you for not reading. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all about words Unless on... Unless you're uh, illiterate, then... You're really, like, being mean to yourself for listening to a book club. If you are into (laughs) little squiggles on a screen or paper, then you are in the right place. Yes. (laughs) Luke, thank you so much for that theme song. Uh, That made all my hopes and dreams come true. We need to animate it now. Yeah, if anybody wants to provide us (laughs) (laughs) with a video video animation, we would be ever so delighted. (laughs) All right, guys, before we dive into this Nerdy Show book club, we're going to cover a little bit of community news because we haven't had a chance to do it too recently. With uh, the end of April, so too ended the Flame On support drive. We had a lot of really cool topics in there, and in the end, Flamon got a grand total of $695, which they'll be using to uh, attend a variety of events, including Gay Days, Yay! where they will have a booth in the Bear Hall. Yay! Oh, I thought they were just going to use it to attend various bars downtown. No. <laughs> I mean, true, every day, every day in Orlando is a Gay Day, but specifically the Gay Days event. Did you hear that we were recently declared the smuttiest city in America? I did. Wow. Wait, wait, lovely. what about, like... We like even beat Las, Baltimore. Las Vegas. It, it's, it, it, that was number two. Uh, what? And, and well, it, we don't it was, even have prostitutes thing, it's, it's, it's based, Orlando beat Las Vegas? It, here's why. Because it's actually based on the uh, like porn downloads and other internet traffic. Oh. That's <laughs> beat Salt Lake City? Well, then. Well, my be, my be everyone. <laughs> to, to be fair, to be fair, 90% of that comes from this house. So. Yeah, really. <laughs> It was well, based on keywords from Google searches, we, we, um, we, we cinematic subscribers, which could come with people who also, you know, have it as a bundle. A bunch of other random stuff. Oh, one of the other things was like quantity of adult stores. Huh? Oh. There are a lot of adult stores. Yeah. But, I but really... here's another question. How do you know what keywords all they were looking for in their search? Like it's possible that, you know, here they look for really, really normal stuff like porn. Like how many times does the keyword porn come up? 
But on the other hand, if you're looking for, you know, incest or, you know, heavy-duty BDSM, like where they stick, like, you know, the nail guns through the tits and stuff. So what you're saying is, what you're saying my is, kind of shit. what you're saying is my homepage being redtube.com is not helping. <laughs> no, I don't I, any. Listen, but, but what I'm also saying is it's very possible that there's, you know, in other words, we like good old-fashioned porn down here. Maybe. Maybe somebody where else they uh, they really like the hardcore shit. Yeah, we don't we don't like really old fashioned. Well, ultimately, shit when you're quantifying smutty, what the hell does that mean anyway? And that's <laughs> the point about the other rest. Now we're not reading any smutty books this time around. But or are, are we? Are we? Um, no. Actually, mine's kind of smutty. <laughs> Actually, this book was kind of smutty anyway. Before we get into that community stuff, though, community stuff. Woo! Uh, the community uh, smut. Yes, community <laughs> smut. The the topic that came out on top was gender, sexuality, bias, and stereotypes in the media. Supported by Gundam King, uh, an anonymous listener, Hugh O'Donnell, Viral Demon, and Tolan. Uh, second place, uh, a huge, huge contender. Vaginas. I'm so sad that didn't win. Yeah, that would have been fun. Gundam King, Twomper, Fodder, Viral Demon, The Roosevelt Sniper, Jay Phillip, Josh Daly, Trench88, and Arceus. Then Nostalgia, where it's used right and wrong, Gundam King, Twomper, and Tolan. First, video games, comics, sci-fi, and more. Sponsored by Barry I, Twomper, and Muckraker. Gay characters in classic video games, Viral Demon and Twomper. And Twilight, Is It Really Gay? By Oberlock. Yes. That'll be a short episode. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> We had some great comments going along with these. Uh, here's uh, the perhaps the uh, the guys who were going for uh, the vagina topic were in fact the most vocal. Vaginas all the way. What can I say? I'm a fan, says Joshua Daly. Trench eighty eight said uh, towards getting the inside scoop on vajus. <laughs> Fodder said y'all need a companion episode to the dick episode. Yeah, it's true. Arkea said, Vaginas. My birthday may have been this month, but I've decided to give a gift to my fellow listeners instead, and what better than an episode that will likely give them the gifts of laughter, knowledge, and the, and mental images that will never, ever fade. <laughs> Tolan supported the nostalgia topic and said, Hey guys, donating this for the nostalgia topic, because if Vaginas wins, the episode will consist of nothing but oral pretending to vomit. <laughs> He won't pretend. Then, for the uh, gender sexuality uh, bias topic, Hugh O'Donnell from uh, the Way of the Buffalo podcast, which Hex and I guessed it on a while back, and is in fact a literary podcast, which I recommend all you guys check out. Hey, hey, I was there too. I'm yeah. sorry, Colin. <clears throat> Remember, I complimented Colin. See, I was looking at Hex the whole time, but you were in the virtual space. <laughs> it makes it weird. It's okay. It's okay. I'm often forgot. If it makes you feel any better, Colin, I never forget you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want more friends than you. Hugh right, uh, <laughs> says, I'm supporting the topic of gender sexuality bias in the media because it's a super important topic. Our subculture is both extremely open and closed, and I'd love to see a closer look. Joshua Mason voted for gender sexuality bias, saying, No vaginas! I love the show. Look forward to listening in every week. I wish you'd cover music more as well as local gay nightlife. Ooh. I think that was probably directed towards Flame On specifically. I believe so. <laughs> I would hope so, or else I can take a video of local gay nightlife and I'll stream that. Now we just have get a belt buckle webcam. Gay. I was just gonna film two guys <laughs> fucking in a bar and just stream it. That's LaunchBrandonGay.com. <laughs> Watch. I wouldn't be doing it. I'm not into that, but I'll film it. Watch Brandon Gay. Um, <laughs> Damn it. 
So uh, we have a, a new Brandon Gay. Gay Brandon Gay. <laughs> With the month of May, we have a new support drive going on, and it is a also a literary one. It's where Nerdy Show will compose the fanfic of your choosing. It doesn't will necessarily be erotic. It'll actually be passed around kind of like an exquisite corpse between all of the various members of Nerdy Show from chapter to chapter to chapter for as long as we feel like. And uh, we've got some very interesting topics so far. Uh, so real quick, so we can dive right into this episode. What is on the docket right now is Weekend at Bernie's 3, <laughs> Night of the Living Bernie, <laughs> Lost Season 6, Redux. <laughs> oh, sorry, Redo. It's French. Redo. 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 Oh, yes. Redo. This one is supposed to be erotic. Right, Kirby's Erotic Dreamland. I don't. I don't even. Uh, Bean has a very convincing argument as to why, including a very sensual illustration. Um, so you should go to the forum and have a look at that. BRB. Rewrite My Immortal. I don't know if we can touch such a perfect piece of art. I don't know if we can either. Basically, we'll be fanficking fanfic, and that's very meta. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, My Little Ponies and Dungeons and Doritos crossover. Crossover between Mr. T and Twilight. Crossover between Elite Beat Agents and Warrior Cats, which is a book series. Doctor Whose Line Is It Anyway? Oh, a crossover between, well, this got a little bit complicated. The, the idea was Gummy Bears, the Disney film Brother Bear, and then the concept of Gay Bears. And uh, <laughs> since uh, our, our support drive only lets you do two crossovers, so two items crossing over against each other. Since that was, I was like, all right, well, we can just do Gummy Bears and Brother Bear. And he was and like, well, I didn't even really want to do, Ross Butler was like, I don't even really want to do Brother Bear anyway. Let's just do Gummy Bears and Gay Bears. So that's what that's what it is. It's just going to be all the Gummy Bears having sex with each other. Awesome. Well, and, and welcome to the land of fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> But we can take this any way we want to from chapter to chapter. I think you're going to find that in passing it around the various members of Nerdy Show, things are going to get very interesting. We all have very different writing style. <laughs> Gusto is not just a clever name. <laughs> and uh, and we don't pl- we don't plan on uh, on telling you guys who's written which chapter. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be anonymous. Reasons. Yeah, it's gonna. And be- might, it's, we might have special guests do writings. It's too. true. If if there's a special guest doing one, we'll tell you that they did one, but we won't tell you which one they nice. did, which is probably. For the best. Let's get K.A. Applegate to do the gay bears thing. <laughs> Before we cut away to a song and then get into to book stuff, we got a fan letter for Nerdy Show Book Club, actually. This comes from Jerome. He said, amazing episode, guys. I absolutely love reading sci-fi fantasy, so hearing your reviews helps me weed out the crappy novels and focus in on books that are amazing, because there are a lot of crappy books out there that should not exist, <laughs> i.e. anything Stephanie Meyer writes. <laughs> <laughs> I myself am currently reading an amazing series called The Band and the Banished for the fourth time because it is quite possibly the best series I have read ever. The author's name is James Clemens, and there is nothing he writes that I haven't thought is amazing. Granted, I haven't read all of his work, but so far, so good. I would truly love to hear your opinions on these books if you should happen to come across them. The first book is called Witchfire. If anything, Colin might like them better than his Lord of the Rings knockoffs. But don't take my word for it. <laughs> Actually, you know, honestly, based on that letter, I, w- I recently went to McKay's and picked up a whole bunch of movie adaptations, which we will get to later. But I looked for Witchfire, but I couldn't find it. But I will keep it. It's on my list, so I'll keep it and, on the lookout. And, and, I did p- pick up Amber Chronicles, though, Luke. Yes! I love you. And uh, Colin, you also received a lot of flack for your scathing review of the Wheel of Time series. I did. <laughs> yeah, but they, it's a knockoff. They think you should really stick with it past the first book. Are you going to? Well, here's the thing, though. The question is, is that, is that okay, so 
the first book is yes, it's it's, it's very. Oh, and, and I forgot to mention that there was there's an actually a ghost army. Yeah. So spoilers. Anyway, so um, anyway, so um, maybe spoilers for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, right. So anyway, so there's a there's a, so the first book is a knockoff, but they were telling me the other books aren't, and they're they that's when they start taking the story off into its own direction, its own original direction. And I have the other two. I have the first three books. So will I get back to them? Maybe, but it's going to take me like really, really taking some time because I have to get through. Game of Thrones and all the other really, really good books before I get back to an iffy shot. And I, and, and, and I know that you guys love them, and it doesn't mean that I won't, but and I probably will give it a hey shot man. one day, but uh, if they're fucking 900 pages long. I, mean, I, I understand. A 900-page Lord of the Rings ripoff even if the other books are good, still doesn't like it's that doesn't win you over, man. That doesn't win you over at all. I get it. And, and so you, I might jump into it one day. And if you like this, uh, if you like this uh, Lord of the Rings go- uh, knockoff, good for you. Good for you. Good for you. We we all say judgingly though, though only one of us has read it. (laughs) Hey, I hate lots of things I've never read. That's true. I'm the same way. So what you got for us, Hex? So what I have? Okay, so recently, Cribe One was in town, and when he was doing that, he uh, he teased to me that he had an upcoming album called Animana Gangster, where it would be an album purely sampled from Animana Gucci tracks. And awesome. it recently dropped, and it was amazing. And one of the tracks, the tracks I actually have for all y'all, is Expand Your Brain, a track that had previously, uh, he had performed, he performed at Nerdapalooza, and he performed it when he was here with MC Chris and Lars and Adam Warrock, and I'm just so excited to hear a studio version that is as good as this. So here is Expand Your Brain by Tribe One from Animana Gangster. Hey Hex, where else can you see Tribe One perform live? Oh, you're talking about how he's going to be a performer at the pre-party at Nerdapalooza, right? Yep, Nerdapalooza 2012. Oh, I guess uh, if I'm having him, I should also have Adam Warrock. Probably. Well, I guess I'm telling you that right now. Adam Warrock and Tribe Wonder Planet at Nerdapalooza 2012. Bam! Hey, they may be performing Nerdapalooza, but don't take Hex's word for it. So 
silver surfboard This whole entire verse earned a triple word score The Silver Age is the new musical Doom Patrol Viewing the Super Bowl in the future with Booster Gold I'm not your average everyday usual human soul I've been imbued with the moves of a super scroll I hold the mic in my human torch hand And flame on like the boards on boardshan.org man And I ain't finished the song yet Put your hands up like you're rocking the infinity gold Now get your hands raised Like you wanna fan the flames into a rampage Place it like a hand grenade I can't say something to expand your brain Into a landscape big enough to land a plane Get your hands raised like you wanna fan the flames Into a rampage Place it like a hand grenade I can't say something to expand your brain Into a landscape big enough to land a plane So, now is the time we're going to talk about Old Man's War. If you're reading the book currently and you haven't finished it, then you're going to want to skip over this section. Skip, skip, skip. But if you haven't read the book yet and you don't really care, that's cool, too. We're going to make this discussion entertaining and uh, not exclude you. It's going to be fun for everybody. And I would say that even if you do catch some of the spoilers, the book is still fun to read, and I would read it anyway. Haha. Well, there you go. There's a glowing endorsement already. Now, this book was suggested to us by Colin. But don't hold that against the book. Old Man's War is, as I joked last episode, uh, reverse Ender's Game. It is uh, about a future where um, when you're 75 years old, you can get shipped off to the space colonies, which no one on Earth really knows anything about. And all they really know is that you will be granted a new life where you serve as a colonial marine and uh, somehow will not be so old and decrepit. Point being, they want soldiers who are basically experienced. Old people, they have something to fight for back on Earth and all that, and uh, you go off into space, and a new life begins. The book's divided up into three uh, parts. Well, I guess we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it now, but that's that's the core pitch without spoilers. And here's the spoilers. So I, I was I was afforded the opportunity to read most of this book in one sitting because I actually read it in line at Record Store Day. Um, so that's that's why I got to read most of it and and cook my way through about half the book. Overall, I uh, liked it all right, but uh, I got I got some I got some problems with it. I had fun. There's a lot of clever ideas. No one can deny that. I mean, this thing it's got uh, it's winner of the John W. Campbell Award for best new writer. Uh, it's got some. Some nominations from other things. Um, Actually, that was Best Nude Writer. Oh. It was a so. finalist for the Hugo Award for Best Novel. I mean, Ooh. that's a big deal. That's pretty awesome. But, yeah. it does, but it does not live up to cap standards. Well, no, it really, really doesn't. And my standards <laughs> aren't overwhelmingly high. So I thought Old Man's War had an interesting setting. I thought uh, I liked the whole once you're out in space, you can't come back kind of thing. <laughs> They made it kind of like foreboding. I was like, oh, well, cool. Uh, now that I'm in, out in space, this is all there is. And, and all the different aliens and how they weren't just traditional, like, humanoid aliens. I really like that. Slime masses. It, it turns into a space discovery story for a while. One of my chief gripes with it <laughs> is that the story doesn't have a plot for most of the book. It uh, is. That would be a problem for <laughs> yep. me. Yeah. I'll agree with that. Even, it, it, even liking it, it was a lot of exposition. Yeah, it, it is It is basically two-thirds world building. Yeah. And then way faster than it should have happened, oh my god, a plot suddenly appears. <laughs> I don't even know if I would have qualified that as world building, though. Like, there certainly is a lot of it, but at the same time, it's just like, it's so much just his perspective that's so narrow that he's not even seeing half the stuff that's actually going on. I mean, think about it. The only time that we're actually dealing with aliens is almost always fighting them. 
Like, there's mm-hmm. one mention of, like, oh, there's some gargle sargabarg over in the corner drinking some, you know, sewage water. And, like, yeah. that was it, like, once. I mean, He's they have no interaction with aliens where they aren't basically gunning them down in the field. But that's but that's actually one of the reasons why I thought this book was interesting, is that basically, like, taking that idea of, like, imperialism and, like, expansion and really, really, like, that hum- human instinct to just, de- like, conquer land and to colonize these different worlds and hold these different worlds from these this alien threat that they basically don't give a shit about if there it's an if there's an alien somewhere else it's the other so basically destroy the other you know human are the people who are the the number one so let's fucking kill everybody else so whatever and i thought that that part was interesting that they didn't care about the aliens i thought that was really that was an interesting take on this kind of genre where there wasn't any alien race like working together with them really it was mostly like humans versus everybody else they initially said that you know there are aliens that work with us and then they that was the last you heard of it and in addition (laughs) to that that's true yeah it's led you're led to believe that none of the aliens give a shit about any other group of aliens including humans either Mm -hmm. in this story like we're following the story of a marine so basically he's a combat he's it's not like we're following around a diplomat who is seeing all the friendly aliens (laughs) sorry i just remember the diplomat yeah so from what you've all described of this book because i'm picturing my mind the only thing i'm seeing is that episode from futurama when Fry and Bender join the military, they, they attack that planet with the bouncing balls for no reason and try to just destroy them and take it over. Correct. That's pretty much Brandon, it. that Correct. is actually a really pretty much what this book is. Yep. This watch the Futurama episode. <laughs> now, uh, another thing that kind of goes in hand in hand with this being world building and then poof plot out of nowhere. Uh, the main character, John Perry, whose name I had to look at the back of the book to remember, uh, is basically a tabula rasa. He is a white male, uh, presumably white anyway, and he is very, very plain. So, and you can, right. he has a background, but you can just impose yourself into him however you want to because there's really nothing remarkable about him at all. Correct. He has, a, he has a couple of traits, and that's about it. Not really pretty remarkable. And there's a very special reason that I've brought John into this episode of Nerdy Book Club. And because John loves no one. <laughs> it's because I was reading I was reading this book on and particularly all the parts on Earth before I'd gotten off world and I was like it takes place in what appears to be a very near future Earth everything seems relatively normal and this book was written in uh, 2005 it struck me that this is a book written before before the iPhone because there is the technology seems completely off. Uh, whether it's for Earth specifically, more than anywhere else for Earth. Yeah. Certainly. As soon as you get off into space, it turns into more of a legit sci-fi where all the technology seems reasonably advanced and everything. Though, but it seems like inexplicably, Earth is is an Earth where the singularity has never happened, where technology has not taken off at an exponential rate and has instead like just kind of waddled along for centuries. This book takes place centuries after our present day, and that's what's like freaking wacky like what was it like the space elevator was completed a hundred years before the book starts something wacky like that yeah i think so yes so you know which is like probably like 50 years from here anyway i mean you know relatively speaking so it's like it's at least about 150 years in the future they still have heart attacks they still have cancer they still have every normal form of disease. Like, nothing happened. It's almost, it, like, backwards from where we are today. And life expectancy is still the, in the same place. And John, of course, has reported many times on Nerdy Show about all the, the things, the, like, innovations that are happening in the medical field and how, like, life expectancy is... I mean, people might not die in the near future. It just... We might be able to turn off 
aging. Can we turn off pooping? Yeah, with with uh, nano machines. Actually, no. I Why would you pooping. want to? You're it, right. Because then you would never have to poop again. But then where would you get your reading done? You're right. Can I still right. choose to poop when I want to? No. Uh, yes. Uh, hypothetically speaking, um, can I be aging a robot isn't going to be defeated by simply <laughs> switching something on or off. I mean, there's going to be wear and tear on the body that'll need to be fixed, but it, it's one of those things. We can work towards that. Here's a quote. Two more plaque attacks waiting to happen. You know what I mean? Like, the heart plaque, all that kind of stuff, it's just... Like, it's still straight-up problems for them. Like, that is just their normal life. Like, oh, don't eat all this stuff. It's filled with cholesterol. Like, That's why I like Ender's Game, because he totally invented iPads in, the like, the 70s or whatever it was. Yeah, in. there you go, right? And all that technology is starting to be invented now that he wrote about. It's great. Because it was it was consciously set in the future. Orson Scott Card didn't dwell on, like, I let me try to make this make sense. He just did something that seemed reasonably feasible uh, and didn't, didn't describe it enough that it would be wrong. <laughs> and uh, and this book go, goes in a really weird direction where, whether it was intentional or not, Earth is very, very relatable and not at all in the future, even though centuries have passed. And then they fling you out into space and it's a whole other thing. And you're like, well, has somehow Earth not realized the great conspiracy where the colonial forces have intentionally kept Earth in a state of technological infancy and for and somehow actually managed to maybe fuck up their technology enough that they never managed to have that big breakthrough. Is that actually like a plot point? Or no, it, that's, that's, that's me speculating. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, I can't, it would be interesting I, if that was a plot I point. I cannot rationalize well, it otherwise. Okay, so it's kind of vaguely, it's vaguely hinted at that there's something like that going on, but it's never really dealt with. Literally, it time. makes sense because they wanted to drive this thing home of like, you know, there's Earth and they wanted to protect what it was to be human on Earth, kind of. You know what I mean? They wanted mm-hmm. to protect... What it is to live. I'll eat my red meat. Watch know, my baseball. As a literary device, that's fine, but I, I feel like. But it's unbelievable within yeah. these confines of this is a sci-fi book, and yeah, it would make more sense if they had actually just straight off the top spun total conspiracy. The conspiracy was simply that oh well, the the military is bizarrely advanced. You know, but, but, but I don't, that's I don't the, know if that's I don't uh, know if, that, if that's the point of this book. That's not the point of what what he's trying to tell. And honestly, like going into that, it's basically what what you know the problem that you're having with it is actually one of the reasons why I liked it. It, it was taking this idea of the everyman, this tabula rasa, this blank character, this everyman whom well, anyone could put themselves into, and. And, and it doesn't matter where he's from. I mean, like, if you were taking no, him, it I'm doesn't matter. So you're taking this every man that you can then project yourself into that is then being thrown into this completely unknown universe that he has no idea of this kind of technology. This sounds where- familiar. Is he from Podunk, USA and has a dog? <laughs> yes. Sort of, yeah. Kinda. So it's just I, I, I kind of like that literary. I, I like that device. The I robot mean, butler it, did it. it. Oh. <laughs> Carl Tron did it. And so, as a device, it's interesting. But from the perspective of it being a sci-fi novel, it winds up being one of those things where it's a hard pill to swallow. It would be a little bit more believable if they did actually basically say, like, oh yeah, well, you know, all the best minds constantly wind up in the military before their time, you know, or or like basically, in other words, pulling no. the earth brain trust out of earth here's the thing there are other books in the series and scalzi didn't miss a beat as soon as this one was out the other one was was about to be out too like he's been pumping these guys out um i don't know how many there are in the series right now but here's what i feel like as an overall thing now i want to get into the particulars because i think someone who's been listening to this and hasn't read the book will be interested to know how how are the old people preserved and all that the the way the plot works is the old people are actually 
Um, and this isn't any kind of huge surprise in the novel. They kick around a bunch of ideas, and for some reason this is a total shocker to them, even though they should have seen it coming. God knows everyone else probably did that was reading it. Right. Yeah, I had a pretty good guess. <laughs> Their bodies are cloned to and amplified, and their consciousnesses are actually placed into a new, younger body that is green because it uses chlorophyll to energize itself, and it, it uses what's called smart blood, which is oh, like damn. a... Yeah, with a trademark and like uh, it's basically it's engineered and they've got these uh, things in their heads called brain pals, which enables some telepathic communication, which is one of the most logical built in built in your brain iPhone kind of thing. Yeah, it's one of the most logical steps. I mean, we're going to we're probably going to see the military use something like that in our lifetime. Certainly, yeah, that would I be want, possible. I would you, like don't you get to name your name your brain pal? Don't you, you get to name your brain pal? You, you do get to yes, name your brain everybody pal. Everybody names it curse words because old people are mature. The brain pal is really a weird thing because at first you're pissed off at it, you know, because it's just like such a, a horrible mess of a thing. Um, but then like it starts like, you know, getting well, all especially if you're, and, you're an old person and you're like, give me text based interfaces. And you got this HUD and you're like, oh, this is annoying. <laughs> if you're an old and person, then by the end of the book, is. it's like they're sending like emotions and like quick phrases, like just back and forth. And they're, they're using it in a far more adaptive and interesting kind of a way. And so, like, that's an t- example of a technology where, like, oh, that's relatively believable, except for the fact of how fucking annoying and, like, just teleprompt bullshit it is at first. Like, it's so bad when it comes out of the package, so to speak. Like, <laughs> right. And then you know, by the end of the book, you're like, wow, that's incredible. Which, which makes yeah. Brain Pal actually it's- one of the more clever parts of the book. One of the things I think was most fun for everybody was the second book, which spends a lot of time going through just a variety of alien races via conflicts. And, uh, and some of those were really neat. I really liked the Kansu, who were the this sort of super advanced race that, for some reason, whenever it fights other races, it kind of keeps themselves level instead of just wiping everybody out, which it seems to be the consensus that they could just wipe everybody out. Right. Uh, it's it's demonstrated in the book that they are of a much, much, much more advanced level, but they combat the races at a similar technological level as that race is at that time. And it, it seems kind of at first like it's more of a it's a sporting event. They're doing it so that they don't completely decimate. But then we kind of like are alluded to that it's uh, it's much more uh, religious and spiritual than that. And they keep throwing things into black holes, <laughs> you know, for good measure. That whole idea of the, the super religious <laughs> that if something is an unbeliever, if something is unclean to destroy it. What is the ultimate final conclusion of how you destroy something? You toss it into a black hole. And uh, basically they, they prune civ- uh, civilizations and their combatants like bonsai so that they may someday become the Kansu. In fact, like whether it's via some kind of temporal thing or simply their beliefs that they will that at some point uh, the other races will reach the greatness of their race and, in fact, they will be indistinguishable from one another. There's a, there's a neat little moment discussing that where they're they're asking the Kansu questions and they ask why uh, they fight all the time, why they fight all the other races, and the Kansu response is, because we love you. To prepare for the Reapers. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that would have made a very interesting spin to this book. And that's where the book ended. There was a particularly yeah. strange part where they're actually on a, a world and they're squashing tiny people. Yep. That uh, was people. the absolute most fucking ridiculous. When I was reading that, I felt like the character was like, I don't understand what is yes. going on. <laughs> 
And it was it's the the brutality of war part of the book. You know, you need that in every military story, I guess, is the point where the yeah. main character goes, "This is a terrible, terrible thing." And they he really drove that home by yeah. stepping on tiny aliens. It's really exaggerated where someone a sniper comes up and starts shooting them. He grabs the sniper, hurls him against a building. <laughs> it's like walking through a model city like in toys. He constantly <laughs> compares it to like Godzilla. Mhm. So what did the the forums have to say about this book? The forum was actually started by Preheminence, and uh, thank you very much for, for starting the discussion. Uh, he said, I thought it was a good read. The pace was solid. The characters were likable. As Galzi alludes to in the acknowledgments, it does remind me of Starship Troopers with less political ponderings. Less um, fascism. After the Ghost Brigade was fleshed out, I wondered for a bit why the CDF even bothered enlisting old folks. It seemed easier to just create better soldiers from scratch. Uh, I think it is because those in charge uh, fear that the Ghost Brigade will lose its ties to humanity and want the majority of forces to, to be people who have uh, very little risk of that. I actually have a theory about that. For uh, for context, everyone, uh, the Ghost Brigade is a is an interesting concept introduced uh, in full, very late on in the book. It and is probably one of the more interesting things, period. Yeah, and yeah. in fact, the follow-up book is called The Ghost Brigade um, and follows some of the characters I wonder why. It. Basically, if you die, it, um, when you sign up, you sign up five years before your 75th birthday, so it's 70. If you die sometime between that time and when you get into your new body, they then, you've signed over your genetic code to them, they have license to use your genetic code as a template for um, a new person. They've already developed your clone body. Uh, they soup it up even more and basically create a special agent, essentially. Like, Not yeah. that they really tell you that, of course. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's a, one of the better kept secrets of the CDF, which is a, an organization that really keeps secrets well, apparently. But the, the, you have these, these super powerful special forces soldiers that have almost the brains of six and seven year olds because that's how old they are. They don't talk like it, and they have they have adult tra traits, but they have six years of experience with reality. Yeah, but and they sort do of have they're crammed into their brains. They are grunt for Mass Effect, clearly. Yes, no, that's that's it because they do have some quote unquote tank training, like they have some knowledge of stuff. But they, they, they don't have knowing, knowing, having like a a high school education or something, but that's before they even have an identity. They don't even know their name at that point. Right. I think grunt is the best uh, analogy. The cool thing about okay. the Ghost Brigades is that later on you find out that I mean, this is the biggest spoiler in the book, is that they um, John Perry's wife, who has previously died, they both signed up for it. Uh, they both signed up to join the CDF, and when at some point John Perry goes through this really horrific really horrific crash oh, and man. is found and is found by his wife and he thinks it's a vision but it's not it's actually happening when we say horrific we mean he is literally a smear on <laughs> one mile of bad road think of think of asriel from legacy of cain and then remove more body parts <laughs> honest to god when i was reading that i was like kind of confused because i was like this is the main character and he just lost his jaw and then just oh, kicked, yes. like need himself in his mouth hole he kicked himself in the uvula. Forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so limp and Perhaps broken the were his appendages. First human ever to do so. <laughs> Getting back to uh, to fan notes, Max Cree said, "I thought it was pretty fun. I'm glad I read it. It reminded me a lot of things I've read before, but that's okay." I was really expecting the medical procedure to be more insidious, like they would transfer your brain into one of the foreign colonists, particularly after setting up that super racist character and how the colonists don't have uh, have to wait to be old. Wait, there's a super racist character. Yeah, and he dies really early on. He's the early volunteer for I, the Ghost Brigade. Yeah, that, that's the okay. reference they make. Skipping ahead in Max's thing, uh, I thought this was pretty interesting. Some of the themes it dealt with, I felt, were better explained in Timothy Zahn's Cobra books, in which humans are given 
ceramic endoskeletons and embedded weaponry so they make better guerrilla fighters on occupied worlds. In the Cobra books, we get to see how these super soldiers are treated after the war has ended by civilians, and in further books, what it means to grow into old age after spending the better part of your life with those kinds of modifications. Instead of implying you, you get out to the pasture, we actually see what life is like for these people trying to carve out a niche for themselves. Ooh. It's called Ghost That in sounds Ghost like in a Michelle. lot of really well thought out deep things. Timothy Zahn is an amazing author. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, a bit of Ghost in the Shell in there, yeah. and... A bit of this book, tiny bit, sort of. I mean, you know, there, there is sort of that, well, now that you don't have your green stuff anymore, you know, like you're just some normal guy, and what the fuck? Uh, what was it? One of the, the doctors was talking about the second time that you're reborn versus, like, the, the times after that, and he seemed to almost long for being in the green body again, the soldier body. Colin, I feel like I've been kind of, like, just leaping all over this crap. I mean, I, uh, what what do you have to say to the, about about all this? <laughs> I've said all the stuff that I wanted to say about this okay. book. It's just so much fun. I, I enjoyed it. That's why, That's just why I put it up. Maybe turn, turn down the critical eye a little bit when you do read it, if you're the kind of person who gets bothered by that kind of thing. And I think it's still really thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's definitely not a, a book not to read. It's no, a, indeed. <laughs> uh, Although, and, I, I, well, I, after I finished it, I could think of a couple of other books that maybe explore the same thing and, and you might call better. Not yeah. as fun, though. Now, what I thought about this is I thought this is would be a great thing for someone to take and turn into a television series or a film mm. because they could take all this word, world building that's done in here and I feel like not very concisely or interestingly written and actually take it and in the span of like two hours or 12 episodes breed it into something that would be really fascinating and very engaging but That's true. Showtime, That's totally talking, true. but don't take my word for it so could we have a brief uh, sort of philosophical discussion about something that uh, one of the technologies in this book sure when they transfer your consciousness into the new body i will submit that they do not in fact do that they basically just fax it they make a copy of you in there, and you are still dead. True. And, but you'll never know it because your body will continue on, and it looks like you, and it's every bit of you, but it's not you. They yeah. don't actually transfer the, the meat computer of your brain into it. They just take all the data. My fear what is, is that? That's is a that really a new life? My fear but how do you know? Is that the question of is that is that actually consciousness? Like what is what constitutes as consciousness? Yes, indeed. Is it data? Is it is it is it your is it your physical body that is giving you consciousness, or is it is it just your perception of self that gives you your consciousness? Will you continue so. to have that perception, or will it just be something basically a clone of you, something that is exactly like you, but you're sitting there brain dead in the in the alcove? I'm sorry. Right, sure. And so essentially, <laughs> you're dead then. And, but you know, like there's a yeah exact copy of you. I mean, it's just isn't that it's, such a mess, right? And and, yeah. and yeah. morbidly enough, if it is you know truly you're truly dying and all that's living on is your is your facsimile, uh, because there's that that moment where your consciousness is suspended between the bridge of the two bodies and you're looking at each other, then you just very like happily watch yourself die. Bye bye. Is that why it's called the Ghost Brigade? Because it's the same thing as like Ghost in the Shell, like a ghost in the machine. Well, no, Similar. technically they'd all be the Ghost Brigade then. The Ghost Ghost Brigade is literally people that didn't even ever live. Although, Cap, you saying that uh, and, and reminding me of that, that section of the book where the transfer does happen, the fact that there is an actual perception and there's an actual a bridge, the bridge itself, where you are in that space of limbo makes me believe that you are in fact transferring your consciousness it does make it seem more authentic but spiritually what can what can we really you know say i feel like the book is making the argument that you know it's it's okay and don't worry you aren't really dying but i think in actuality it's like well 
you know, I was here and now I'm over there, but w- what does that ultimately mean? It, it would, I believe that it would be actually easy enough to have effectively copied out the consciousness and left him alive on the other side, too, and basically had two crazy people, one that was 75 years old and the other one that was in a wackadoodle green body that was, you know, 20. <laughs> Let's read one of my favorite parts of the book right now. It was this, also one yes. of my favorite parts. This is uh, basically the, the only part in the book that made me lol and made me feel like, okay, well, and early on in the book where I'd started... I'd read it, I'd been engaged, but then I, I gradually got more critical and more critical and more critical as there were things that I just couldn't I just couldn't really come to terms with. This part was like, okay, maybe there's something going on here. This is a scene where the main character, John Perry, encounters a stereotypical drill star- drill sergeant. It's an early army impression. It, it is. Yeah. So basically what's happened here is the drill sergeant has singled out every single person via former race, creed, sexuality, occupation, uh, point of origin, any conceivable thing. And he said, Nazi affiliation. Yeah. And he said, now go run to the fucking tower. And like, and bit by bit, everybody's left. Only person left is our tabula rasa, Mr. John Perry. So here we go. Eventually, I became aware that Ruiz was looking directly at me. I remained at attention. Well, I'll be goddamned, Ruiz said. One of you shitheads is left. Yes, Master Sergeant, I yelled as loudly as I could. I find it somewhat difficult to believe that you do not fit into any of the categories I've railed against, Ruiz said. I suspect that you are attempting to avoid a pleasant morning job. No, Master Sergeant, I bellowed. I simply refuse to acknowledge that there is not something about you I despise, Ruiz said. Where are you from? Ohio, Master Sergeant. Ruiz grimaced. Nothing there. Ohio's utter inoffensiveness had finally worked to my advantage. (laughs) What did you do for a living, recruit? I was self-employed, Master Sergeant. As what? I was a writer, Master Sergeant. Ruiz's feral grin was back. Obviously, he had it in for those who worked with words. Tell me you wrote with fiction, recruit, he said. I have a bone to pick with novelists. (laughs) No, Master Sergeant. Christ, man, what did you write? I wrote advertising copy, Master Sergeant. Advertising? What sort of dumbass things did you advertise? My most famous advertising work involved Willy Wheelie, Master Sergeant. Willy Wheelie had been the mascot for Nirvana Tires, who made tires for specialty vehicles. I developed the basic idea in this tagline. The company's graphic artist took it from there. Willy Wheelie's arrival coincided with the revival of motorcycles. The fad lasted for several years, and Willie made a fair amount of money for Nirvana, both as an advertising mascot and through licensing for plush toys, t-shirts, shot glasses, and so on. A children's entertainment show was planned, but nothing came of it. It was a silly thing, but on the other hand, Willie's success meant I never ran out of clients. It worked out pretty well, until this very morning moment, it seemed. Rees suddenly lunged forward, directly into my face, and bellowed, You are the mastermind behind Willie Wheelie Recruit? Yes, Master Sergeant! There's a perverse pleasure in screaming at someone whose face was just millimeters away from your own. Ruiz hovered in my face for a few seconds, scanning it with his eyes, daring me to flinch. He actually snarled. (laughs) Then he stepped back and began to unbutton his shirt. I remained at attention, but suddenly I was very, very scared. (laughs) He whipped off his shirt, turned his right shoulder to me, and stepped forward again. Recruit, tell me what you see on my shoulder! I glanced down and thought, no fucking way. It is a tattoo of Willy Wheelie, Master Sergeant! Goddamn right! Snapped Ruiz. I'm gonna tell you a story, recruit. 
back on Earth, I was married to an evil, vicious woman. A veritable pit viper. Such was her hold on me that even though being married to her was a slow death by paper cuts, I still felt suicidal when she demanded a divorce. At my lowest moment, I stood at a bus stand contemplating hurling myself in front of the next bus that came along. Then, I looked over and saw an advertisement with Willy Wheelie on it. And you know what it said? Sometimes you just gotta hit the road, Master Sergeant. That tagline had taken me all of 15 seconds to write. What a world. Exactly. He said. As I stared at that ad, I had what some would call a moment of clarity. I knew that what I needed was just to hit the fucking road. I divorced that evil slug of a wife, sang a song of thanks, packed my belongings into a saddlebag, and lit out. Ever since that blessed day, Willy Willy has been my avatar, the symbol of my desire for personal freedom and expression. He saved my life, recruit, and I am forever grateful. You're welcome, Master Sergeant, I bellowed. Recruit, I am honored that I have had a chance to meet you. You are additionally the first recruit in the history of my tenure that I have not found in me at grounds to despise. I cannot tell you how much that disturbs and unnerves me. However, I bask in the almost certain knowledge that soon, possibly within the next few hours, you will undoubtedly do something to piss me off. To assure that you do, in fact, I assign you to the role of platoon leader. This is a thankless fucking job that has no upside since you have to ride these sad-ass recruits twice as hard as I do because for every one of the numerous fuck-ups they perform, you will also share the blame. They will hate you, despise you, plot your downfall, and I will be there to give you an extra ration of shit when they succeed. What do you think about that, recruit? Speak freely. It sounds like a pretty fucked Master Sergeant, I yelled. You are a recruit, Ruiz said. But you were fucked the moment you landed in my platoon. Now get running. Can't have the leader not run with his own tune. Move! I really liked that bit of writing, too. I thought it was really well done. And I was, uh, kind of wanted more dialogue like Cause that. Because it was, it was silly. It was yeah. like, it was really silly, but in a stupid, realistic, kind of car crash sort of way. Yeah. That's, I think that's the kind of moment where we saw that this, this caricature of Arlie Ermey was actually, like, had more depth to him. And I kind of liked it. Even though it was just another I- reason for... Uh, our tabula rasa character to uh, not be hated on sight. I want yeah. the book about the master sergeant and his life before. <laughs> I don't know what happened. He gets made reference to a few times. You get a few background details on Ruiz. Yeah. Something involving like a, a base commander's daughter and a hovercraft. <laughs> so, in spite of all the anger that this book brought to you, will you say that it has a lot of potential shining underneath the flaws? Absolutely, and I wouldn't even say that it brought anger to me at all. I just, I, know, I, just <laughs> I, I just, I just was like, it was just like, come on. Come on, really? I'd be interested to give uh, the Ghost Brigade a chance. And I, you know what? I would too. I, I, I legitimately would also. Uh, the main character of that book is John Perry's wife. Ooh, Jane Sagan. Cool. Jane Sagan. But don't yes, take new, his word for name. it. And uh, we're we're uh, well overdue for a track. Coming up next, we've got the other books we've read and some other cool stuff. What you got for us, Hex? The track that I have is from a brand new chiptune artist named Kubi from Norway. Uh, This is a new track that was released the 1st of May called Sleet, and this particular track 
is called Sunrise, parenthetical, New Beginnings. And, uh, the track dragged me to it because with Old Man's War and the wo- a bo- book that I'm about to propose for us to read, the, the title New Beginnings really fit. And this particular track was gorgeous, dynamic, showed lengths that chiptunes can go while remaining steadfastly in the the contemporary medium of chiptunes. And it was just a really phenomenal track, and I'm loving the whole album. All right, here it is. Thank you. 
All right, so now we're going to talk about what else we've read other than the uh, book of the month, Old Man's War. We. Who's up first? Oh, hey, it's me, Brandon. Hey. Uh, I'd like to point out that Brandon's wearing (laughs) his muscles gases glasses. It's to keep away the lights. So, essentially, I don't read many books because I find them boring and there's no pictures. (laughs) However, knowing this, someone recommended uh, a few books to me that they thought I might enjoy, and I was like, bullshit. But I started reading them, and they were pretty awesome, and I couldn't put them down. Uh, and I was reading them every single day and couldn't stop. Basically, there's an author I've never heard of before <laughs> named Garth Nix. Have any of you heard of him? Nope. Okay. I've heard that name, yes. Okay, um, he wrote a book. It's a trilogy. The first book's called Sabriel. Um, and there's a second book that I finished afterwards that's like another 700 pages named Lyriel, and they all end with like cliffhangers, and there's three of them. Uh, I've only read the first two. If you like fantasy books... Ooh! That it's pure fantasy. It's not science fiction or it's not science fantasy. It's just fantasy. Essentially, there's this world that's kind of like post, actually no, pre World War Two. You know, there's electricity, there's guns, there's like some small tanks and things. Oh, so it's like urban fantasy. It's not. It's not like swords and sorcery fantasy. Oh well, wait. Oh, north of this of this area of this continent, there is um, another continent, basically another area. Uh, separated by this giant wall that's just constantly guarded by soldiers. The closer you get to this wall, the more and more technology starts to not work. Guns will misfire and jam, lights will dim, handmade paper will start to crumble. Um, Nothing north of this wall scientifically works at all. The only thing that works north of the wall is pure magic. And everyone south of this wall doesn't really know that it exists, and they kind of hear it as rumors. And, you know, it's guarded constantly by by soldiers who also carry guns and other weapons like swords and crossbows. And no one really knows why, but they know why. Because <laughs> other shit doesn't work. And essentially, the main story takes place around a girl named Sabriel, who has been growing up in this, like, pre-World War II era world, you know, with science and technology, even though she is from the place called the Old Kingdom. Essentially, what happens is... Her father, who is a necromancer, who is feared by all uh, necromancers in general, but he's a good necromancer, he visits her all the time, but suddenly he goes missing, and she travels north of the wall to figure out what has happened to him. And essentially, necromancers in this world, uh, you know, bring things back from the dead as a necromancer would. His job, her father, was the opposite. He was a necromancer that used his powers to put the dead back to rest. And the the old kingdom is slowly being infested by the dead, and no one really knows why. So she inherits basically the tools of the trade from her dad. She doesn't know why and and basically goes on this journey to find out where her dad went. I mean, that's essentially how the plot goes. And necromancy in this world, I really, really like because they use a series of seven different bells. They have this leather like bandolier with seven different bells of increasing sizes. And each one has a mind of its own and does things increasingly like fucked up to the point where like you don't want to ring the last one because it'll kill you and everything else with you. And there are certain ones that will like you can paralyze people or the dead or send them back into death oh or bring them out of death. And she learns to gradually like walk into death, which is just this like cold river with like nine different layers. And the farther you go down, the more monsters like basically try to go after her and, and come out with her. And it's, it's, she has to go in several times. And it's really cool. really cool. It, well, I, I just I couldn't stop reading it till it was over. And it was only a few hundred pages. And then the sequel, which is called Lyriel, is about a different girl, and it does tie in at certain, you know, at some point, but it's about two different stories, actually three different stories technically that come together, and it's 700 pages, and basically everyone meets near the end of the book where events happen, and then it ends with a cliffhanger after 700 pages. But I, it didn't feel like a 700-page book because I didn't get bored once. Everything that he described in the world, like the magic and, like, uh, the different races and things like that, like, 
it was amazing, and I just I read it every time I went to the bathroom, and so I finished it in a couple days. <laughs> Did a whole lot of pooping. I was like, man, I don't need to poop right now, but I'll force some out, and worth you know, I'll risk a brain aneurysm to read another hundred pages of this book because it was that good. Because you no. can only read while pooping. Well, because you, you know, I just don't. You want can't it. just like you can't just go take the book and sit somewhere. You have to be on the toilet. Well, I'm, I'm gonna. Well, I just feels more comfortable when I'm naked, perched atop my throne, <laughs> uh, dangling some stringy brown muck from my booty hole. So I haven't read the third book. It's a trilogy, and apparently he hasn't written anymore after that for that particular series, which I don't know why. Because he hates you. Obviously, you should check it out if you like fantasy, because it's badass it sounds great it has lots of magic but um, that's basically what i've read and and it is really hard for me to get interested in books usually i read like a few pages of a book and i'm like boring and i put it down but obviously i didn't do that with these two so. in the uh in the reverse of book club i have actually written stuff since we last met gasp no no no. that's for the writing club save it for the writing club <laughs> i wrote a i sat down one day going i'm gonna work on my book because i have a lot of book ideas i'm like i'm fucking i'm just gonna work on one 12 hours later i walked away with sixteen thousand words written 16,000? Yeah. 16,000 words. Was it all die? die. No, no, I'm no. driving my screen for you. The book is, uh, the book is, uh, it's called Alan, and it's about a, uh, a computer scientist who starts working on a little bit of what is called pro, uh, genetic programming. It's programming that can modify itself. And just, like, it f- has a problem and it tries to solve itself. It oh, my God, it. it turns into Digimon. Uh, <laughs> you, wrote, you wrote the plot to Digimon. No, I, I didn't. Like. I didn't. And so he introduces a text-based uh, prompt, and uh, he starts interfacing with it, and it, it just starts mimicking him. It doesn't really understand what's going on. So then he feeds it a bunch of books, and then he's eventually talking to it. And basically, the point of the book is to evolve this bit of code into being a uh, genuinely artificially intelligent creature and then actually taking... The Turing test to have it prove that it is artificial intelligence, then I'm still working on it. But it's really fun. I'm on the ninth chapter right now, which is like 80 pages. And, and I also wrote a haiku while we were during our, during our music break. And I'd like to read this haiku. This is dedicated to Colin. Is this in the book? No, no, this is just right now. This is, this Can, is just... Wait, it should be, should the, forward. be in the forward? Like, the, you know? <laughs> the book. This, this will be, be this, may be, this may be in the forward. Hello, dear Colin. I really, really hate you. You are a stupid. <laughs> and that was a haiku. That is a haiku. On a similar uh, note, I, I'm fairly certain there's some fundamental problems with that being a haiku. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a five seven five. It works. Syllabically, yes. Okay. On, on a similar note, I have a. It's re- strange that a dog will eat a dead bird, but will never eat a grape. That's a haiku. Is that? I have a reverse haiku. Uh, a seven re- five seven instead of five seven five. It's. The cheese is old and moldy. The rat likes the cheese. Why does the rat like the cheese? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Seven, five, the seven, wit awesome. and wizzicism of Brennan Gerson. Oh, yeah. I've been saving that one for years. That gives a high five. Oh, yeah. He, his, uh, his tour his, uh, his tour of Barnes and Nobles uh, starts next month. Oh, I, I thought Prepare it was... your snaplaws. I always thought it was pronounced novels. Thank you for, <laughs> for fixing that. I thought it was Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> uh, what about you, John? What you looking at? Well, right now I'm actually reading Tobin's Spirit Guide. What? Yes, it's really a thing. How, explain how it is a thing, John, please. <laughs> it, well, I'm assuming that it is a thing because it was written, you know, in 1920s or whatever and is filled with, uh, you know, stories of the worldly beyond. All the different types of spirits and bizarre creatures that inhabit it. Is this a fictitious book that believes it to be a reality, like, say, the Buckaroo Banzai novel? 
Or is this um, something that was actually is actually something that Dan Aykroyd chose to reference in the film Ghostbusters? It would be a completely made up thing, Bob. Uh, However, it's more fun uh, if I talk like it wasn't. Uh, yes. uh, <laughs> just pretend that it was real. Okay. Real. Just ir- it unimaginable. It is aspect. encyclopedic by like region with all the different bizarre specters known, including uh, you know reports about them, how well they deal with criticism, you know, like any number of different things. Basically, like I guess you could say, stats and stories uh, related to any ghost, goblin, or uh, creature of the beyond. That uh, happens to cross your path. And any uh, personal favorites, unusual things? There, there is a section here about the Gozerian cult. Is there a Another... picture of an enormous slore? <laughs> uh, most likely, actually. It's very thorough. Gozer in England, the Gozerian cult. Oh, yes. Yes, it's all here. Hmm. Zool, the gatekeeper. For Zool, achieving its goal is a two-step process. First, it must possess a human host to travel through our world without attracting a lot of attention. Then it must seek out and join with Vince Clothor... Vince Clortho, the key master of Gozer. Key master of Gozer. <laughs> the power resulting from their summoning ritual enables Gozer to come forth, at which point Zul vacates the body it has possessed and sits back to watch the fun. Okay, so we got a brains 5, muscle 7, moves 5, cool 4... Power 10. I suspect that you are, in fact, reading the uh, guide that goes along with the Ghostbusters tabletop role-playing game from the 1980s. I have no idea what you're talking about, but if that is true, this thing is fucking thorough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's not particularly written like as if it was written in the 1920s, like, moves four, cool five. I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, no, that's the specs, man. I don't think you have the Tobin Spirit Guide. I think you got a role-playing book, bro. (laughs) Wait a bit. The most important thing about this is that I have just this instant discovered that there's a Ghostbusters role playing game, (laughs) and that no one told me. Well, actually, um, we've recently found out that there's a Ghostbusters role playing game podcast, which is funny because even before D and D, around the same time we came up with that idea, before we actually recorded it, we joked about recording a Ghostbusters podcast based on the original role playing game. And there's actually a local podcast that uh, I haven't. I've it's in my docket of things to check out. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but there's they do they actually play the system, and it's it's based out of a Ghostbusters franchise in Orlando. Luke McDuffie, I choose you. Yeah. Creep. I have recently, I don't know what my Pokemon call would be. Uh, cigarettes! Um, <laughs> um, uh, I have recently, I've been playing a lot of Minecraft again and uh, discovered that iron golems are suddenly a thing and building those brings me such a joy. And I have gone back and re- I'm rereading one of the uh, Discworld novels called Feet of Clay. We talked about Discworld before. We had a whole episode. It's kind of a, a sat- satirical, funny fantasy universe written by Terry Pratchett. And this one in particular deals with kind of the idea of whether artificial life counts as life. There are golems that work inside the city, and the golems are – they're basically robots, That, but as far as anyone is concerned, they do what you tell them to, and that's all they are. They're just tools. But it's, it starts to be revealed as, as the story goes along that they really have their own consciousness, and they have their own beliefs about themselves and, and other living things. And uh, without giving too much away, it, it really explores the idea of, of what counts as life. And when you have an artificial life form, what are its rights? What is, what is, it, what is it afforded? Is it just the same as us? And also along the way, there, it, is, it is very, very funny, as all the Discworld books are. 
And this one, this one in particular is the is a Nightwatch series book, which is my personal favorite series. So that's extra points. Interesting. Cool. We tend to not talk about graphic novels on this show for a good reason, because we do actually have comic episodes. Uh, don't believe us? Well, it's been a while, uh, but there is actually a new one in the works and will be out shortly. But uh, the reason we don't talk about them is because there's comic episodes. But we figure sometimes something sort of transcends the uh, the barriers here, and it's not something we're going to necessarily be able to touch on in a comics episode. I thought it was only right that we. Ex- extend this opportunity to talk about the very literary and and complex graphic novel that both Hex and I uh, read recently, Habibi by Craig Thompson. It was really good. I couldn't stop reading it. It is. I, uh, I kind of flipped through this when I was at a, at the Barnes and Noble the, the other day, actually, and it looked very nice. <laughs> Craig Thompson, just for a little bit of context, he is the uh, indie comics author who he wrote this book called Blankets, which you may have heard of. It was this breakthrough independent success released through top shelf publishing and uh, it basically made his career that was about 10 years ago though it was a coming of age story non-fiction about his like first major uh, love interest a love interest in him like uh, embracing atheism though being raised christian and uh, lots of very complicated themes artfully presented and very well done uh, he is both the writer and the artist do you have a copy of this i do have a copy of blankets I, it's right I'm there totally gonna borrow that okay i'm surprised you haven't read it actually i haven't Next. read it uh, it was something that uh, one of the things that Mike and Aaron like first put in my hands as far as like early indie stuff that they bequeathed unto me when they started working together at the comic shop. Nice. We've been waiting for Habibi for a long time. In uh, 2004, Craig Thompson released a travelogue book, sort of a, a diary called uh, Carnet de Voyage, which was basically written while he was researching Habibi. It's like it's like a sketch diary thing. And then Habibi has been this is supposed to be out years ago. I mean, it is way past due. But you know what? You, you look at this huge bound book that's it looks very much like an ancient tome of old it is thick it has got gold on it and all these like ornate scribbles of, uh, of an Arabic styling and uh, then you flip it open and you see what the art looks like inside uh, yeah you can understand how this book took uh, a long time to put together I'm handing it to Brandon right now and it is fiction it isn't it isn't nonfiction at all it is the it is a story uh, set in this kind of arabic world that has modern elements to it but at the same time could take place as old as like you know the 1001 nights it's maybe you could call it a fantasy setting to a certain extent it definitely isn't a modern world but sometimes it just isn't maybe that's just vindicative of how the middle east actually is i don't know i haven't been there and i said vindicative but i meant to say indicative uh, it's very much in line with the uh, the latin genre of magic realism where there's mm-hmm. a sense of magic that you don't really know is it real is it not it's still up for discussion that uh, is very prevalent in this book and i really liked seeing that in a different setting, because normally magic realism is very distinctly. It's funny that you're identifying this as magic realism. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it magic realism at all, actually. Oh, yeah, because there's any magic that happens on page could be easily called in, into question. Right. No, but that, that's. I think that's part of the the beauty of magic realism is that any magic that happens could be discounted as not really magic and that's part of the but it's it's this nobody nobody's throwing it, fireballs it, or anything it's it's well it's not it's not quite as fantastic as i as i would normally classify magic realism with there's like almost 700 pages of completely detailed art i'm fairly certain i haven't researched this but i'm fairly certain that craig thompson in this time creating this book taught himself arabic because it seems like he'd have to he it's plays very when i when i read who who craig thompson was at the very end i'm like Oh, he's from Michigan. 
<laughs> like because uh, being being in this i really felt that this came from a uh, an arabic descent that like this was like that arabic was their first language and that it plays with arabic words in a very i mean it's a very visual language obviously it's very and, cultural too and, and uh and it it does things with it that you'd have to have a certain amount of fluency to get away with doing and uh, also the the quran has clearly been meticulously influenced it, it uh it tells a lot of uh, stories. It compares the Quran versions of Old Testament stories to uh, the Judeo-Christian Old Testament stories. But ultimately, it presents the story of a young girl raising an even younger boy uh, together in this kind of almost enchanted setting, dealing with the harsh realities of growing up in some very, very unexpected ways. As you would imagine, something set with a female character set in um, the Arabic world, there's a lot of discussion about uh, gender roles and, and sexuality and so on, but without spoiling anything, it actually does go much deeper into that uh, concept than you would expect uh, in ways that you would not predict it would go at all. I mean, it's a really beautiful, uh, complex, and touching story that is easily, I mean, this book just came out in the last couple months. I expect it to win every goddamn award that it can. Agreed. It is absolutely uh, a triumph of art and writing, and the this Craig Thompson must be some kind of machine to have just he hand draws or ornate like Arabic designs, the the kind that you would see in in you know palaces and everything in tile work, uh, in Persian rugs. I'm talking complexity, all hand drawn. Uh, it's just really unprecedented. I I gotta say, like this is absolutely unprecedented work, and this is going to be one of the milestones in graphic literature right here easily yeah i can't wait to pick it up that sounds incredible get it now so you can still be cool for reading it (laughs) (laughs) but don't take our word for it and uh one last thing i want to mention because it's real cool and also came out recently is the first of three volumes of dark crystal original graphic novels oh i want uh volume one's called creation myths brian froud is the big name you'll see on the cover he's of course the guy who co-conceptualized dark crystal with jim henson created all the drawings and everything question um, yes. does this actually take place before or after the events before okay. the events of the dark crystal film and well, aren't, they making a, aren't they making a film they, they are making another one? They, uh, it's been in uh pre-production hell and we'll see if it ever happens. If I if I heard correctly, uh, the main characters of this are Agra and her son. Yes, Agra and her son are the main characters of this. Yeah. Um, she has a son. It is uh, officially, Brian Froud, though he says the biggest name of the book, is concept, character design, and cover. But it's actually written by uh, Brian Holguin, uh, who I guess, you know, uh, Froud took the, said, here's, here's what we're going to do. And then he said, all right, let's do it. Really cool book. Lots of different kinds of art in it. It tells the creation myth of the entire world of the Dark Crystal and some really cool fables uh, of the uh, the Gelflings and uh, and Agra and her son uh, named Runyip, who is a, a very important player in the world of the Dark Crystal, uh, we learn retroactively, uh, because there are things that Runyip can see that, despite Augur's all-seeing nature, she is blind to. As was hinted in the free comic book day book from last year that was republished in this volume, uh, Runyip may in fact see the corruption of the Dark Crystal coming and chooses to not tell his mother anything. I also, totally want to borrow that. a very cool book. You may borrow it. I am putting it in Hex's hand oh. right now. Well, Colin, you're the last one left. I am the last. I am the last one. And, Save uh, the worst for last. <laughs> I have been reading along with uh, uh, Old Man's War. I've been reading um, Wildwood. I actually, as you guys will come to realize uh, in these subsequent Nerdy Show book clubs, I read a lot of young adult novels. Specifically, this one is written by Colin Malloy. Oh, of, De- the- of Decemberists? 
the lead writer. Of, I'm the lead singer of the Decemberists. Oh, and uh, my, my, yeah. my wife got it for me because she was like, hey, you like the Decemberists. I'm like, yeah, I love the Decemberists. I'll read this book. Cool. So anyway, let me let me preface this by saying that Colin Malloy should stick to writing songs. Um, <laughs> is that because okay. he's really good at writing songs or he's not so good at writing young adult novels? He's well, really good at writing songs. He's really good at writing songs. Here's the thing: this book is is this book the 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 premise of this book is that it is um it's set in Portland, and um there's a character named Prue. Uh, she's about a, a, a I believe a, like an 11, 12 year old girl, and she lives in Portland and with her younger brother Mac. Of, of course, uh, she does. Out, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, her younger brother Mac, whom she has taken out in her bike. He's on in like a radio flyer, you know, wagon on the back of her uh, her bike, and they go out into the they go out to a playground where these crows abduct Mac. Regular crows, they're not like you know personified crows. They're they're crows, and they just take him off into this into the woods, um, which is called the Impassable Wilderness, which apparently is a thing in Portland where on all of the maps there is this thing called the Impassable Wilderness, <laughs> and Colin, Colin Malloy said, what happens in this Impassable Wilderness, which is a cool idea. Prue goes off into this uh, Impassable Wilderness to go and discover and find and her, her brother Mac. Um, meanwhile, there's this other boy who comes with her named Curtis, um, who's kind of like a, a nerdy, you know, kind of dork character who goes along with her. And she's is. kind of a, like a, a hard chick. Tomboy. Tomboy type. Yeah, tomboy type girl. Anyway, they go into the Impassable Wilderness, and as they go into the Impassable Wilderness, they find out all these different um, – they discover all these different things in the Impassable Wilderness. Um, the very first thing that they discover is they fall upon this band of coyotes who speak and are wearing, like, army uniforms and carry muskets and sabers and all this kind of stuff, and they're uh, abducted by the coyotes, or at least Curtis's. And, you know, blah, 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 long story short, basically what ends up happening – Prue goes throughout the entire world discovering all the different parts of the wood, Wildwood. And there's like Southwood with, with tons of bureaucracy, the Avian Principality, which you would like, Brandon, which is basically like a whole bunch of all these birds have come together. Uh, the There's a, the king of the birds, which is the owl, Owl Rex. Um, there's an eagle who's who's the general and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And there's uh, a wild wood and then the north wood and et cetera. It's very, very – it's very Narnia-esque in that there's a lot of like these speaking creatures and that they have their own culture and et cetera. But the problem with this book that I'm finding is that it's very – and I am not a fan of this. It's very episodic in which Prue will run into – the Southwood bureaucracy deal with that problem and then move on to the next thing to get to her brother. But she's like, Oh, and then she runs into another problem and then she runs into another problem and that, then she runs into another problem. That sounds very and similar then, to the original Oz. I was just going to yeah, say that actually. Is yeah. it kind of fable ish like the way they tell the story? Yeah, in a way, in a way, it is kind of. But the problem with it is that it, I, I am not a huge fan of that storytelling technique. I like it when when stories kind of interweave with each other. I have yeah. heard from a lot of different a lot of different different people online that people who like the Decemberists, the band, enjoy this book, of course which do. I can totally well, agree with because there's a lot of the King is Dead, the most recent album, those stories which are kind of relatable to this book. But that being said. Like all of these little things are basically like he could write an incredible album with all these different 
episodes. But it's just like they're so drawn out and they're so – like the characters are so dry. And the book is 550 pages long and it's just like she just runs into all these different problems and they just not solved and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the other main problems that I have with the book – and I don't normally have this problem – is that the violence in this book seems out of place where other young adult novels you'll have like Hunger Games or not even a young adult novel, but specifically kids and violence um, being like Lord of the Flies and et cetera. You know, you'll have these kids commit these horrible acts of violence where in this book, Curtis ends up siding up with the coyotes and kind of destroys a whole band of bandits, human bandits. He throws, he basically like helps the coyotes and comes up with the idea to roll a giant log down the hill that crushes hundreds of these bandits. And it's described in pretty graphic detail. The, that part doesn't bother me. The part is the fact that he is not, there's no, he doesn't have a problem with what he's doing. And in things with Lord of the Flies or Hunger Games, there's the idea of they're put into this uh, into these situations under duress, or they're put into these situations and they're not necessarily happy about doing what they're doing. They're just doing it to survive. But Curtis and and Prue are doing these violent actions and doing them kind of for fun. I mean, <laughs> they don't specifically say it's for fun, but there's no reason for them to do it's it. It's like one minute you know? they're, they're normal characters, the next minute they're just killing things and they don't say anything about it. They're like, yeah, kill things. Yeah, right. yeah. it's like, hey, we're just kids and we're just killing stuff. It's okay. Yay. So, I'm fine with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> I haven't finished the book, but, <laughs> but you don't I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, I'm only 50 pages away from the end, and I wouldn't necessarily... It's very... There's some very interesting ideas, and what you brought up about the whole TV series thing, this would make a great great show. Wait, I have a very um, important question for you, Colin. How, yeah. How many crows did it take to abduct that kid? A murder of Because crows. it would have taken probably a few hundred. The entire sky filled with black crows. Oh, okay. That, then that would probably do it. Well, that was several murders. Yeah. Okay. Several murders. Awesome. And they would like, yeah, and they like would drop him and then others murder. would catch them. I thought I was like, awesome. oh, ten crows just flew down and picked a kid. I was like, not possible. Sorry. No, 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 no. It, it, no, it, it relatively make, relatively makes sense. But now, it's, do, do they say what I, kind of crows? No, they were an episode of sparrows. <laughs> they, they were black. <laughs> what you saying, black. Cap? Why, why the color they crows were... got to be black? Did they come in singing, Hey, a pretty thing, let me let you Okay. <laughs> no, no, it was but, actually She Talks uh, to Angels. That's what they were doing. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's, it's pretty derivative. But, I mean, if, it, if, if I had read the Oz books, maybe I would be interested in the, um, you know. It, or less interested. Yeah, the illusion. Apparently, I like to read books that are like, quote-unquote, rip-offs of previous books. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> So, it's hard to find anyway. anything that's really original at this point. So it's, that's very true. But anyway, so that's Wildwood. But um, and I would recommend it, ish. But you don't have to take my word for it. Does Malloy use this as an op- another opportunity to show off how much better his vocabulary is than everyone else's? Yes. Oh my God. I have not. <laughs> I have. There's, okay. I've counted it. I've. I, I don't have a fancy iPad, but I have counted. But seriously, it does help. You know, fancy iPad. There have been 13 instances of the word akimbo. (laughs) (laughs) And he thoroughly enjoys that word. I mean, he uses akimbo. He used akimbo in uh, Hazards of Love and and other such uh, other such songs. But yeah, I mean, you know, what's funny is that the first place I ever saw akimbo was in like early children's literature. Can you please use it in a sentence? 
Those are uh, hands his hands. limbs were splayed akimbo. I, I took out and played my akimbo. <laughs> what? Different. The African <laughs> instrument, the akimbo. <laughs> no? no. It's it means having, your, it means having uh, basically things to your sides. But I think it's the one that you pluck. I don't think you... Furthermore, I have the book for January 2013. What? Warren Ellis' novel, the new one, comes out then. Oh, sweet. Gun Machine. So January 2013, you know what to look out for. But what do we have to look out for this coming Nerdy Show Book Club, Hex? After uh, hearing Colin talk about how much he loved Old Man's War, it made me think about, well, what's my favorite science fiction book? Um, well, it's not my favorite science fiction book. No, 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 no. And I, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't label it as yours, but it made me think about what is mine. Sure. And it is, uh, I can say without uh, a doubt, Philip Jose Farmer's To Your Scattered Bodies Go. It is the first of a, a book series called the River World series, and the premise is that everyone on Earth that has ever died between, like, caveman days to the year 2007 or something, I forget the exact year, uh, all wake up on this planet. They are... It's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. It's a very large planet. And they all have an orgy the end. They are all naked. They're all hairless. And they are all in their prime. They're like 25-ish. Orgy, yeah. And uh, the story actually follows Richard, Sir Richard Francis Burton, and as Wikipedia describes him, a geographer, explorer, translator, writer, soldier, orientalist, cartographer, and ethnologist, spy, linguist, poet, fencer, and diplomat. This is real? This is a real What's person. What's an orientalist? He's someone who is very interested in the, the Middle East. East. And the Middle East. Uh, by, by the way, culture. Brandon, I would like to point out that that situation that you're like, oh, orgy then, that totally happens in Old Man's War for oh, like a it, whole chapter. Oh, yeah. It happens a lot in Riverworld. Yeah. Like they can't um, wait to get to the fucking after they get the new bodies. Sir Richard Francis Burton is a true Roosevelt. Like, he was a Roosevelt he, before Roosevelt was even a thing. He's a super polymath. Like, he wrote, <laughs> he, he spoke in 29 European, <laughs> Asian, and African languages. He wrote on human behavior, travel, Falconry. Wait, 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 wait. Fencing. Uh, it's, there's not enough time in someone's life to do all these things. He, is this on the Wikipedia? This is on. Okay, the, I guarantee. He's you. just trying. No, no, to keep no, no, up no, 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 no. I, and I, all the different things. I, after, studied. after I read this book, like I went up to, I researched Sir Richard Francis Burton. This is a real guy. All this shit is legit. The four <laughs> things he's most known for is uh, back then, around his uh, uh, when he when he was alive. No white man was allowed into Mecca, so he disguised himself. And he was the first white man, the first European ah! in Mecca. What? He translated. This is real. He translated a thousand and one Arabian Nights into English for uh, distribution. He was uh, on a. He was the leader of an expedition team into Africa to find the source of the Nile. So he is a super person. He is a super person that comes and, once every like and, thousand years. And here's why we all thank him. Why Smutty Orlando thanks him. He is the reason why the uh, Kama Sutra is published in English. Yes. Yay. <laughs> so this is a very well-renowned superhero. And like super explorer and superman. I'm gonna copy his Wikipedia and post it online. And so he is the main character of Riverworld, of To Your wow. Scattered Bodies Go. Well, he's just gonna do anything. I mean, well, who's gonna stop him? Like the the book starts. I don't even want to give away the the way the book starts, but um, it uh my 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 stepdad when he gave me the book uh which was written in 1971 and was the Hugo Award for best novel in '72. He gave it to me and said, read the first chapter. If you don't want to keep reading, it's not the book for you. I, w I flew through the first five chapters before I put it down. 
And, then you, and then you said, I don't want to read any nope, more. Nope, I, I read the whole series. <laughs> I love the whole series. Uh, the title to Your Scattered Bodies Go is from the seventh of Holy Sonnets by John Donne. At the round earth's imagined corners blow, your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise. From death you numberless infinities of soul and to your scattered bodies go. So it's it's about it's sort of a reference to that bit in Revelations where everybody goes back to their old bodies. Exactly. Oh. And so wow. um, cool. it's really cool. Uh, you come across Hermann Goering, uh, Adolf Hitler's. Yeah. You come across uh, Prince John. And uh, no, there, there's just all kinds of really interesting Don't you run people. Mark Twain? Mark Twain is in the second book, The Fabulous Is there a River horrifying book. claymation animation involving a thing that probably is Satan? <laughs> no. <laughs> but we'll link to it. There was a made-for-TV uh, movie by Sci-Fi Channel. Do not watch it. It is horrible. It is horrendous. Oh, based on the book? Yeah. Yeah, never mind. No, don't. You don't, said Riverworld? Riverworld. Yes. You can find it... this on the Amazon and the Kindle store with the first, I think it looks like the first two spe- uh, uh, stories in this for 10 bucks. So it has nothing, what I shall be doing. It has nothing to do with Waterworld. No. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. So basically There's... the way the world is built is that there are like kind of like sectioned off areas that are all mountainous that are unscalable paralleling each other along a riverbank so there's this long river that just winds around the entire world over and over again just snakes all over the place and there are these little cubicles that hundreds of people live in and you find that these kind of like cubicle areas like are originally when everyone is awakened there's some kind of like era era and location that they're all from like he wakes up and it might be he might be surrounded by a bunch of ancient romans or you might be surrounded by a bunch of uh, Nazi Germans. Or you might be surrounded by a bunch of uh, Chinese people from this year. He's like died. the sci-fi. He's like the Doctor Who of death. And so here's the thing. When you die in this, you're, it's not permanent death. You just awaken another part of the river the next day. So I could just run around with a sword killing people uh, until hey, I get killed? Hey, Brandon, this is another good opportunity to reference Secret of Evermore. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <not> <laughs> So it's a good book. I loved it. A Hugo Award winner. One of my it is my favorite science fiction novel. So we'll we'll be reading that, and we'll let you know when it is that uh, that your reading is. Dude. Well, yeah, the reading, that, that actually sounds interesting. I, I might really actually fun. read it this it's time. It's really fun. Okay. And before we go, before we go, we need to have our customary read from an adaptation of a film Glee. book thing. Yes, and I was at McKay's, and I picked up. Like five of them for five cents a piece. <laughs> Classic. They're all over the place. Enrich your yes. life. Get some of these. It's true. And and the one that w- that we decided to read was Independence Day. <laughs> Welcome to Earth. Uh, welcome to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Say hello to King Tut for me. All right. <clears throat> oh wait. So this, <laughs> so to, to, give, to, <laughs> to give you some premise. Uh, this is right after catchphrases. Uh, I don't even I don't even know their names, but Will Smith and what's his face Jeff Goldblum. You know they they stole the alien ship and they're about to blow it up. Oh, right. and they, they let us. They're flying into the mothership. Yeah, they they flew into the mothership and they're about to blow up the uh, the mothership. Steve thought he could hear the fat lady singing, still sprawled on the floor, <laughs> hiding himself below the dashboard. He reached into the breast pocket and removed the pair of cigars Julius had given him. He held out one to David. I guess there's nothing left to do, he said, handing over the smoke. Except nuke them before they come in here and do something nasty. <laughs> David, still locked in the, in the staring contest with the creatures behind the glass, nodded, coming to grips with the fact that he was about to die. Inspecting the cigar, he mused, it's funny. I always thought things like these would kill me. Okay, let's fire away. 
Steve lifted himself off the floor and sat down in his pilot's chair, trying to keep his eyes off the repulsive sight of the creatures straight ahead of him. He opened the cover plate on the back black box and punched in the launch code. The LCD screen blinked rapidly, presenting him with two options, launch and cancel. Nice meeting you, man. He reached across and shook David's hand. Likewise, David assured him. And we almost got away with it. Almost, Steve agreed. Ready? Bye-bye, Fuzzy. Bye-bye, Blinky. David waved to the aliens, giving them each individual names. See you later, Egghead. And you too, Froggy. Think they know what's coming? Steve asked. The cigar dangled from his mouth as he reached down to execute the firing. Not a chance. As soon as Steve's finger touched the button, the floor of the tiny cabin kicked violently backwards, knocking both men off balance as the eight-foot-long missile shot away in a shower of rocket exhaust. Fire and shards of glass flew everywhere. By the time Steve and David could look up, the missile had penetrated the crystal observation window, crashed through the back of the observation room, and lodged itself into the distant wall, its rocket engine still spewing a jetsam of sparks. Their artificially generated atmosphere impeached. The aliens behind the glass began to twist and expand horribly as their bodies were sucked in all directions by the vacuum of empty space. Their bulbous heads burst and splattered like kernels on bloody popcorn. <laughs> as, this as this gruesome show played itself upon the windows of the attacker, the clamps holding the ship unexpectedly released and the ship lifted several feet in the air. An explosion in the observation tower knocked the ship backwards. It skittered off the identical craft parked next to it and wobbled out, out into the open. We're loose! Doesn't matter, David said. The game's over. Steve checked the data from the black launch pad. Its digital counter showed the time remaining until the nuclear warhead detonated. 21. 20. I don't hear no fat lady, he said. Jumping to the pilot's chair, he sp- Spinning the craft around, David had enough time to jump into his chair before Steve yanked back on the controls, jerking the ship into a full-speed getaway. Forget the fat lady! You're obsessed with the fat lady! Just get us out of here! (laughs) Quicker than the human pilot could have reacted, a handful of attackers roared into pursuit. Although Steve hadn't mastered his plane steering mechanism completely, he had no choice but to push it back at a breakneck speed. Swerving dizzily, he rocketed through the dimly lit maze of the mothership's interior. The pulsing attackers held off the firing at their prey until it came to the mouth of the exit tunnel. Suddenly, they leashed a flood of tracer fire, but they didn't have enough angle that they needed, and Steve shot into the triangular passageway toward the exit. It's closing, David shouted. The doors are closing! I can see that, Steve said. Steve had enough to worry about without a side-seat driver. The exit of the end of the tunnel was growing smaller by the moment, and the three thick doors moved closer, sealing off their hope for last escape. Straining the consoles to the breaking point, Steve milked every ounce of speed from the craft, roaring towards the closing porthole. He checked the black box. Nine. Eight. It's too late. They're closed. David watched the last few stars disappearing behind the triangular doorway. When he saw Steve meant to try it anyway, he closed his eyes and held his breath. They shot through the narrow aperture with only inches to spare. Elvis has left the building, he screamed. Thank you. Thank you very much, David chimed in, lamely attempting to imitate the king. Once they were out in space, Steve located the earth and steered the plane towards it. One. Zero. The attacker continued to accelerate, streaking through the space at several thousand miles per hour as its occupants stared at North America, perfectly clear but so far away. Then there was a flash of light so bright it seemed to come from the rear of their attacker. Steve and David had just enough time to look at each other with concerned expressions before the force of the blast moving through space caught them from behind. Uh-huh. Like a loose board caught on the surf, their little ship rode the crest of the explosion, getting knocked ass over tea kettle. Steve tried to steer through the wave of turbulence for a moment, but then lost control as the explosion engulfed them completely. Okay, if that was like, what, a page and a half? Did anyone else hear nothing but constant sexual references? 
I heard, I heard, I heard mouth. So like penetrating and like hitting the back wall. Yeah, I heard penetrate, hitting the back wall, spewing forth mouth, a thick door is like... Like I just yes. like the yes. small opening itself into the distant wall. It's eight rocket small, engine eight still spewing a jet of like, sparks constantly. <laughs> constantly. Also, the use of jetsam without flotsam a little weird. And what the hell does <laughs> impeach mean? I mean, in the way he used it, is that the right way to use it? It's yeah, they're artificially generated atmosphere impeached. It's probably correct, <laughs> it's but it's an interesting usage. I've never it's definitely ever heard somebody it somebody sitting there with their thesaurus next to them. Yes. <laughs> yes, because I've never heard I that. I want to say before. breached, but I kind of wanted to start with I. Oh, <laughs> uh, impeach! Impeach! Just, I've never ever heard that word used. Like that, that was terrible. That, and so, and man, that dialogue, God. Must uh, this go just, faster. This, Must go this faster. cemented it. I <laughs> never want to see this movie again. It did It did uh, remind me exactly how bad the writing was, though. Whoever I that was. I have got to get me one of these! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Man, hey, you ain't going to be no astronaut if you marry no stripper. <laughs> How do you guys remember these lines? Oh my god! <laughs> All right, well let's let's, let's uh, yes, let us please let's blow this, this this thing and go home. What do you got for us, Hex? Well, in the uh, continuing the sci-fi theme, I have a track from Big Giant Circles from his most recent release, Max Effect. Big Giant Circles is known for actually Jimmy Henson uh, is also is known for actually being a composer for Mass Effect Two and recently released Legacy which was a collection of uh, previously unreleased music for Mass Effect 2. He just released Max Effect, <laughs> which is a, a collection of remixes of Mass Effect 1. And this particular track is called Vermeer Shakedown. All right, well, we'll listen to that. Then we'll uh, we'll hit you back later for more updates on Nerdy Show Book Club and other stuff. Head on over to the forums, the brand new forums. We have our old forums indexed, um, but we did actually have to. The forums were in beta for quite some time, and we actually did have to start from scratch in order to get them to where we wanted to. So, oops. But Thank you, Gundam King. Yeah, thank you so much to yeah. our community manager, Gundam King, for taking care of all that for us and uh, ushering in a bold new era of Nerdy Show forums. Seriously, there's a lot of cool stuff coming up and lots of big changes coming up for Nerdy Show. All of it awesome. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do check out Nerdy Mealtime at nerdyshow.com slash bacon. Share it with your friends. We want to get that, uh, that YouTube money. We want to get the internet fame. You know, we want uh, people to take notice because you, you, you've seen it probably. You know how insane it is. You know that we create a it's worthy. Supreme Pizza Star Destroyer and a Rebel Talk Hade Runner. It is worthy. It is worthy. And we want uh, we, we would be honored if you would share this with your friends and family. Click like. We'll be back with more uh, Nerdy Book Club every single month. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Hex. Bye, I'm Brandon. Bye, I'm Colin. And Bean, I'm giving you a shout-out. And this is what you get for my friendship. (laughs) Bye, I'm Luke. Bye, I'm John. Thanks, guys.
for listening to the Nerdy Show Book Club. The uh, Nerdy Show Book Club is brought to you by a comic shop, Nerdapalooza, Play and Trade Ovido, and listeners like yourselves. If you enjoyed what you heard, support Nerdy Show by telling a friend, picking up some merch at the Nerdy Store, or support us with your hard-earned pounds and receive exclusive perks. For more episodes of Nerdy Show Book Club, Nerdy Show Dungeons and Dratos, videos, contests, and other nerdy programming, please visit nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show podcasts via the iTunes Store. Follow us on Facebook or Tumblr on Twitter at Nerdy Show. And get social with other Nerdy Show nerds at nerdyshow.com slash forums. But don't take our word for it. <laughs> Tell me you wrote fiction, recruit. I have a bone to pick with novelists. <laughs> No, Master Sergeant. Christ, man, what did you write? <laughs> I wrote advertising copy, Master Sergeant. Advertising? What sort of dumbass things did you advertise? My most famous advertising work involved Willy Willy, Master Sergeant. And then a lot of stuff happens, and there's no more dialogue for a while. And that, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and then it goes. <laughs> he takes his shirt off. <laughs> then he takes his shirt off, and, you know. Wait, uh, do, does the Master Sergeant take his nipple. shirt off? You are the master hind. <laughs> the master hind. You are the mastermind behind Willy Wheelie Recruit. Yes, Master Sergeant. His voice changed. I don't know what that was. <laughs> yes, Master Sergeant. I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book. Everything I read now. <laughs> yeah, boy, let him see. Recruit, tell me what you see on my shoulder. Blah blah blah. More stuff happened. Um. What, you weren't going to read the fun part? Then he stepped back and began to unbutton his shirt. It is a tattoo of Willy Willy Master Sergeant! <laughs> Goddamn right! I'm going to tell you a story, recruit! Back on Earth! Oh, this goes on for a while. I was married to an evil, vicious woman! <laughs> this woman was a veritable pit viper! Such was her hold on me that even though being married to her was a slow death by paper cuts, I still felt suicidal when she demanded a divorce. <laughs> at my lowest moment, I stood at a bus stand, contemplating hurling myself in front of the next bus that came along. Then I looked over and saw an advertisement with Willy Willy in it. And do you know what it said? Sometimes you just gotta hit the road. <laughs> Wait, that was the other character saying that, sorry. Sometimes you just got to hit the road, son! <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Exactly! And as I stared at the ad, I had what some would call a moment of clarity. I knew that what I needed was to just hit the fucking road. <laughs> I divorced the evil slug of a wife, bitch! Sang a song of thanks, packed my belongings into a saddlebag, and lit out. Ever since that blessed day, Willy Willy has been my avatar, the symbol of my desire for personal freedom and expression. He saved my life, recruit, and I am forever grateful. You're welcome, Master Sergeant Mon. <laughs> yeah, this goes on for a while, so I'm done. My throat can't take much more. <laughs> 
But don't take my word for it. But I'm gonna add it in. <laughs> <laughs> we know that's why we do it. 